Hello, Behind the Irishman fans. I'm Chris Tapley, and I host The Call Sheet, a Netflix podcast that brings you detailed conversations about the making of your favorite Netflix films and series. What you're about to hear is a special bonus episode for the Behind the Irishman series, namely my interview with cinematographer Rodrigo Prieto. You'll hear us talk about the game plan for shooting The Irishman, how the look of the film was meant to evolve over the course of its three-and-a-half-hour running time, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy it, and if you want more interviews with the talent behind Netflix films and series, please check out The Call Sheet wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Chris Tapley, and you're listening to The Call Sheet, a show that dives deep into the craft of your favorite Netflix films and series with some of the most talented artists and artisans in the game. going to take a trip behind the camera lens this week. Let's go to our guest first for a quick introduction. My name is Rodrigo Prieto and my craft is cinematography. Rodrigo Prieto is the Oscar-nominated cinematographer behind films such as Amores Peros, Brokeback Mountain, Argo, and one of my favorite movies, Spike Lee's 25th Hour. In recent years, he has developed a fruitful collaboration with master filmmaker Martin Scorsese. The two first teamed up on 2013's Riotous The Wolf of Wall Street and again for 2016's Silence, Scorsese's simmering personal study of Christian faith. Rodrigo was again Oscar nominated for his beautiful work on that film. This year they have The Irishman, about one man's journey through mob life and his relationship with two paternal figures, one of them the luminary James R. Hoffa. It's an elegiac story, one overflowing with themes of regret and legacy, the perfect yarn for someone like Scorsese to spin at this point in his career. Technically, though, the film was a beast to tackle. De-aging technology was employed to allow actors Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci to play through a series of decades, which, on top of crafting a handsome period piece with all the design trappings that come with that, made Rodrigo's work all the more challenging. On this episode, for instance, you'll hear about the R&D that went into developing a proprietary camera rig for shooting material that the effects artists could work with. You'll also learn about Rodrigo's game plan for visually representing the three distinct time periods of this mammoth three-and-a-half-hour opus. And that's just a taste. So let's get into it. Okay, Rodrigo. We are going to get into the weeds of what you guys accomplished here. But first, I wanted to uh, talk about the conversation that you had at the start of everything with Mr. Scorsese. What kind of references might have been thrown around in that conversation? Uh, what was he saying to you in terms of just what he wanted this film to look like? Well, the f- very first conversation was not um, a moment where we were actually supposed to be talking about the movie The Irishman. So it, was, it came to me as a surprise. Uh, it was a photo shoot, and uh, they were taking some photos of us uh, while we were promoting Silence. Scorsese, as we were there, standing in front of the photographer, said, you know, I was thinking uh, maybe we, we could give this movie uh, the feel of home movies somehow. And then he added, but I don't want it to be grainy and handheld. And then the photographer went, okay, guys, look this way or whatever. And that was it. That was our first conversation, period. End of it. And uh, but that stayed with me. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I'd even read the script even at that point, the book. I read the book later, you know, reading the script. I realized uh, it's such a uh, movie about memory and remembrance mm-hmm. and, and uh, the past that I, I thought, OK, that's probably what what he means. He wants the, the, the image to reflect that sense of 
memory of images. So uh, since we couldn't do the you know Super 8 or 16 millimeter feel, I, I thought that maybe we could uh, apply the look of still photography, mm -hmm. of amateur still photography. So that was one of the first things I, I started researching in terms of images, finding yeah. um, uh, photographs from, from the 50s and 60s, uh, and, and most of them uh, ended up being Kodachrome and uh, Ektachrome. Mm -hmm. So uh, I showed him photographs of that, uh, and he, he, he did like it. And uh, so we designed these lookup tables, which emulated uh, the, the color, the way that uh, Kodachrome reproduces color mm -hmm. and contrast. Same as, uh, and, and we used that for the 50s. Mm -hmm. And then for the 60s, uh, we did uh, ectochrome. Yeah. That was the first part of it. But then we did have a lengthy conversation uh, when we actually started the prep of the movie. And, and one thing he, he talked uh, a lot about was that he didn't want the, the movie to have a exciting, to give it a name, shots. Mm -hmm. Because he wanted the camera to reflect Frank Sheeran's way of approaching life and approaching uh, his job, which mm -hmm. is painting houses. Yeah, uh, quote unquote. Quote unquote painting houses. So uh, he wanted uh, the, the camera to be simple, just as, as he doesn't do, you know, complex uh, killings. And, you know, he just is practical about it and yeah. methodical. Uh, that became another big mantra for us during the, the filming of the film. Let me back up, though, for a second. You said you read the book before, obviously, before you read the script. I'm just curious, like, do images fly into your head as you're reading that kind of material? I mean, it, it, like, what kind of ideas were just coming to the fore for you that you brought to him from that? I try to avoid thinking of the cinematography as I'm reading a script. I try to just focus on, on the characters, the story, how it moves me. What, what I'm feeling in each scene so that when I talk to the director, I don't have preconceived notions of, of anything yet. Yeah. And then I try to listen carefully to what the director has to say. And that, that then becomes the basis of, of the ideas I'll, I'll start exploring. So then the second time I read the script, okay, now, now is the time when I'm designing uh, the, the look. So and then, of course, it's organic as you as you advance in the uh, pre-production, as you scout locations, uh, as you see what the production designer is designing, what the costume department are making. You know, all this influences the, the many of the decisions of yeah. the, the cinematography as well. Well, uh, beyond just the kind of sense of referencing the look of photography, but just because he is such a student of, of film history, I, I'm just curious, was there anything from the world of movies that he was wanting to? reference at all and bring into this, you know, not that anything's derivative, but, you know. I, I do know that uh, that's a big part of him, <laughs> yeah. obviously, of uh, just the history of cinema. He's constantly seeing movies and it's a, it's a big influence on, on him, but uh, we didn't discuss it specifically. It's probably really. subconscious for him. Yeah, it's something point, yeah. that sometimes after the fact we'd talk about certain shots uh, and, and he'd say, yes, that, that uh, a certain movie made me think of a shot like that. But it's not something that he asks me, go you know, see this movie. Not generally, sometimes, mm -hmm. but in this case, I did see uh, Crazy Joe, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, you know, about Crazy Joe Gallo. Mm -hmm. and it, but it wasn't for any reference of the look of it. Just, it was more uh, a context of, of the story. Mm -hmm. you know? and, and in fact, uh, we were much more accurate in terms of the locations and, uh, you know, many things that uh, 
even the, 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 the killing in Umberto's clam house, he did in just some restaurant, you know? So, so <laughs> we did a very, very careful reproduction of, of the, of the place. And, yeah. And that's, by the way, one of my favorite parts in the movie is, well, there's so many, but, but the Umberto's clam house section is, is, uh, I think the combination of the visual effects and, and what we did lighting those streets and when the mm. production designing team did uh, in, in, in the streets in the Lower East Side in Manhattan is, is astounding. And, and I think it's, it's really something to, to really go back in time and, and feel what it might have been like. You know, and, we, and we used a lot of references uh, of uh, news, for example, at the time, photographs of the actual place. And it was really exciting to really see it come to life and come together. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, this movie, you're kind of, you wait about 50 minutes before this huge introduction of this major character happens, Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, I'm curious about, just to jump ahead a little bit, um, if you guys talked early on at all about how are we going to show Hoffa when we first see him? How are we going to capture him with our lens? Because it's interesting how we see him. It's very close. It's kind of from below. There's some interesting contrast with how it's lit and he's on the phone, you know. Uh, So just tell me about that. Since this was going to be a movie with him so at the fore, how did you decide how are we going to kind of like bring him into the movie when we finally show him it was all about the phone conversation scorsese was very keen on 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 how the phone was handled and uh on on the let's say the frank sheeran side of the conversation uh he, he really wanted this notion of the phone being brought with a long cable from all the way from the bar area onto uh sheeran's table and mm-hmm. um and this shot where the camera goes around from the back of the phone, mm-hmm. you know, kind of from the back of his head and the phone uh, to the front of his face in a very tight shot. That that was, I think, one of the first shots that he, he described to me. And, um, of Frank on the phone. Of Frank yeah. on the phone. So then I think that was kind of the thrust of the discussions about the f- conversation. Mm-hmm. When we shot Hoffa, we did it in a soundstage, you know, that uh, where we built his whole office. And he uh, did want to see the Capitol building outside of the window. So that dictated the angle mm-hmm. of the camera. And then I personally felt that it, it, giving him a sense of mystery the first time we see him with the lighting was important. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to suddenly, here's Hoffa, you see him clearly. Because Sheeran is talking to him on the phone. He's not actually seeing him. Yeah. And since the, the movie is from Sheeran's perspective, I thought that it, it, was, it would be a good thing to light him in such a contrasty way in chiaroscuro so that half his face is dark. Just to keep that sense of, of mystery, even for the audience, the conversation when they talk about painting houses and carpentry, <laughs> these are things that... Frank Sheeran obviously understands and Hoffa knows, but for us as an audience is mysterious. It's weird. So I just want to give that, that whole scene, that, that sense of, of mystery and a little bit of perhaps foreboding. Uh, let's go back to the, uh, you were talking to, uh, briefly about emulating these looks of Kodachrome and Ektachrome. And then for like the later portions of the movie, I believe you did, you were trying to emulate a, a bleach bypass kind of a look. So just tell me. Mm-hmm. Get, get into the weeds with me a little bit on this. Mm. Like, what did you want uh, those different kind of emulations to, to, what did that mean for you, that, that Kodachrome, Ektachrome, and the Bleach Bypass look? Well, it, it, it all started also from my own memory of my childhood or my the photographs of my parents. And, and, and I do remember very clearly my childhood 
in Kodachrome colors. When I first uh, went to Disneyland, you know, I, mm. I grew up in Mexico City, but an uncle of mine lived in Los Angeles. So we went to visit and we went to Disneyland and I remember all those photographs. And for me, it's a, it's a very specific color and, and it's uh, saturated, but the colors are present in a way that in reality, they are not there. Say the sky, there's a certain hue to the blue of the sky. Reds are very, very prominent in Kodachrome. And all this is something that I just had in my memory, but I didn't understand what exactly it meant, color Kodachrome means. So we actually did a, a pretty deep uh, exploration of the way the colors are reproduced in, in Kodachrome. And it, it was a scientific study, let's say, in the sense that we mapped these colors to what the camera captured, let's say the green grass or the, the in Kodachrome, actually green is desaturated a bit, whereas red is very saturated. So it's, mm. it's not, um, it's not a, just adding saturation. It's a very specific way where the colors behave in a, you know, in different ways. And ectochrome is also different to Kodachrome, even though it's also saturated. But I think the main thing I noticed on ectochrome is that the shadows and the dark areas become cool. They become kind of blue cyan. And uh, and still their image is saturated, but it's different than Kodachrome. Yeah. So it's something that certainly the audience won't notice and, and say, of course, oh, yeah, this is, I remember those ectochrome shots. But, <laughs> but it's just, you know, something subliminal. But then I thought that those bright colors wouldn't work for me just emotionally for, for the, the rest of Frank Sheeran's life. Uh, originally, we were going to apply ectochrome to the 70s as well. But then I thought uh, maybe we should toned down the color in the 70s and researched uh, bleach bypass processes that are done on the prints of, of movies. And uh, there is a process uh, called ENR that Vittorio Storaro first used. Uh, they developed it in, in Rome in Technicolor. And the result of ENR is that the uh, blacks become very deep, higher contrast. And the uh, Overall color is uh, reduced. It's desaturated. So we developed two different uh, stages of ENR for the 70s. It starts as a pretty subtle desaturation, extra contrast uh, until 1975 af after the road trip that they take to Detroit. And all of that is, uh, the let's say, the ENR light. But then when uh, Frank Sheeran actually kills Hoffa, Right after that scene, it changes to a more extreme version of ENR. So the rest of Sheeran's life and everybody's life is less colorful and uh, with, with a deeper, deeper blacks. So in essence, the net result in the movie is that you start with a colorful Kodachrome and then a little less color colorful Ektachrome. And as his life progresses, especially after Hoffa's death, color is drained from yeah, the Yeah, the color just starts to bleed out. I love that, that, that it just mimics the kind of emotional journey. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. You guys shot film and digital, right? That's right. So uh, how, what, was, what were those discussions like in pre-production, like deciding on, were you talking about maybe you would shoot all in digital at one point or all in film at one point, or did you just decide this, that doing both would be yes. better? Well, once we started discussing this idea of, uh, of the memory, right, of, mm -hmm. of uh, photography, uh, it became clear that film negative would be more accurate to that feeling, mm -hmm. you know, and, and still a digital image doesn't 
have that feeling of memory. So we early on decided we wanted to have a filmic look. But parallel to that, I was already in, in conversations with Pablo Hellman from ILM. He insisted that all the shots that were visual effects needed to be digital. And the reason for that is that he needed, needed to capture depth information from each angle. And that meant that he needed to have the main camera that was doing the shot in addition to two witness cameras for each angle. And, and those three cameras had to be synchronized, perfectly synchronized in terms of the shutter. That's very, very hard, if not impossible, to achieve with film cameras. And also, he needed these three cameras to uh, move in unison. So film cameras with a magazine would be too heavy and too bulky to achieve that. So it became necessary to shoot yeah. all the visual effects of the de-aging technology with digital cameras. But since we wanted this filmic look, I insisted that we shoot whatever was not, did not require a, a visual effect with de-aging to be shot with, with film. And then that becomes the look that visual effects has to match. We did a lot of testing of this and, uh, and we determined that the camera that better reproduced the um, lookup tables that I was uh, using on film was a red helium camera. So that's why I picked that camera as a central camera on the, um, we call it the three-headed monster, which is uh, the rig we created for the visual effects. Well, let's get into that. You've run your tests. Now you've got your game plan. And and, and I want to talk about this three-headed monster because I'm curious if, uh, is there anything in the realm of an industry standard there? Or is this all R&D and you're figuring it out? Like, tell me just about those nuts and bolts of putting something like that together. Yeah, this was complete R&D. We've never done anything like that. I mean, I guess the closest would be through, you know, 3D rigs, but that's two cameras. Yeah. One of the most important things for Scorsese and for the actors is that they didn't want to have tracking marks or any sort of helmets or, you know, little things attached to them that, that uh, would be distracting for, for the actors. He wanted them to be able to perform like they always do right in front of, you know, the other actor in his costume and everything. So, um, Can you imagine, though, behind the scenes photos of like Pesci with like <laughs> <laughs> stuff all over his face? Yes, that, that'd be, be weird. And I, uh, no, I wouldn't envy the person who would go to Pesci and say, okay, put this on, sir. Yeah, right. <laughs> He'd be like, what? Take it off. But uh, in order to make that work is that Pablo Helman designed this technology. So he needed uh, to to be able to capture all this information from the camera angle. And like I said, with the two witness cameras. But also one thing that was interesting is that he needed that the cameras capturing the depth of it, that are called witness cameras, he needed them to not have in any of the lighting information, meaning that those cameras had to capture a completely flatly lit image. Mm. So these cameras had filters that blocked out all of the visual spectrum of light, except infrared. Around this filter was a a series of LED infrared lights, which were projecting infrared light onto the actor's faces. The main camera would not register the infrared light, so it was invisible to us as, as on the set and to the actors and to the main camera. But those witness cameras were seeing the face of the actor completely flatly lit frontally Mm -hmm. by these LED infrared lights. So I could light the actor 
in a silhouette, let's say, no light on the face or real, uh, you know, high contrast like that situation on the phone with Hoffa. But the visual effects would have all the information, even though it's dark on the lighting, they could have all the information with the infrared. So that was one of the reasons, you know, that became a complicated rig because, the, you know, these witness cameras had to have all this stuff around them and monitors for each camera. And then add to that, the team uh, had to be a focus puller for each one of the cameras and monitors, and, you know, so it became kind of an ordeal. And then another part of it was matching in post-production for visual effects to match the lighting I was doing on the set. Because mm-hmm. the face was actually replaced by a computer-generated face that was exactly reproducing the performance. But now we had to also exactly reproduce the lighting. So for that, of course, they had the reference of the main angle as a reference, but then they did all sorts of things uh, where after we shot the performance, they would bring into the set right in front of the camera a silver or mirror, actually, sphere. We'd photograph that, and that reflects all, all that's around where the face would be. So then you have the information of where the lights are because you see them reflected on the ball. And then a a grayscale ball as well, and we'd photograph that. And then a color chart. So we photographed that too to get the intensity of the light and the colors. And then they put a a camera that would photograph 360 right where the actor had been. It's called LiDAR. And they also photographed all the information of the lighting and all that. All that is fed into the computer and applies all this information onto the CG face. And it's really seamless. I mean, when I was doing the color timing of the movie, I never thought, wait, this does not represent the lighting I did on the set. So it was very accurate. It was pretty amazing. Did you have any idea that you were getting into this kind of a scrum? I mean, like, did you think you were going to come in and just like shoot a nice little period gangster film? (laughs) (laughs) No, it was clear from the very beginning. And there were tests that were done beforehand, before the shoot. And uh, so we kind of knew. And then, yeah. you know, during pre-production, just designing this rig and making it work, work yeah. uh, it was a, an ordeal. You're obviously at the fore, I think, of, of this technology, obviously, with what you've done. So is it up to snuff for you? Is there room for improvement? Like, where do you think, like, the, the, the hurdles are to advance it from here, you know? From a um, cinematographer point of view, I think that uh, one place to advance is to make the rig easier, simpler. Uh, the cameras uh, more lightweight because it was uh, still a thing. It was a monster, you know. So I I hope the day comes soon where if we're doing this, we don't need to call it a monster. It's just bring in the <laughs> the tri camera. The tri camera that sounds good. I, I like think that. I've coined the phrase. Yeah, that sounds I think good. you should use that. But uh, I think you know it, it was well worth it. I mean, in, in in this movie, it's it's I think it's very unique to see a movie where realistically the actors are aging that, that many decades absolutely let's talk about the plan for uh camera movement you talked about it briefly that it would be a little simplified but you know i just think of a few images like the opening shot floating down this hallway and mm-hmm. eventually coming around to 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 capture frank sitting there and then there's a couple of those classic sort of scorsese like mo- movements of kind of sweeping into a, a conversation or something mm-hmm. like that but uh Dig in deeper to me on 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 what you guys talked about when the camera moved, what it would mean. Well, the camera always moves with a reason or doesn't move for a reason. And, and the Scorsese is very specific about that. And one of the things I most enjoy of, of the, the work with him is, is when he describes the shots he's, he's imagined and, and why he's uh, doing a, a certain language with a camera or a different one. And, and that's something that happens in pre-production. He, maybe for 
a week or sometimes more, he'll disappear from everywhere and he'll go to a hotel and and do this shot list mm-hmm. on his own. He'll go through the script and scene by scene will design the the shots, sometimes with little drawings, sometimes with diagrams. Uh, most of the time he writes the shots, he describes them. And then he shares that with me and with the assistant director, David Webb. That becomes the basis for the shoot. So for the most part, when we are with Frank Sheeran, the camera behaves in a very simple way. And it's as I described before. Uh, when, when we see him driving a car, we're frontal, right through the windshield, or completely sideways as we're tracking with a car, th- this sort of thing. Uh, if we see the facade of a house or a building, it's completely flat on. Let's say when, when the, the first time we see him uh, kill whispers, the other whispers. Um, <laughs> well done. <laughs> we see him, the camera sees him coming down uh, one street and then the camera simply pans around and we see him, we see whispers and boom, shoots him. Yeah. That's it. That's it. There's no additional shots. There's no reaction shots. There's none of that. So it's simple. There are other moments where the camera does have a, a more dynamism, but usually that's when Frank Sheeran is not involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, even the, the moment when we see the Anastasia killing uh, and the camera starts in the barbershop mm-hmm. and then comes out with the bodyguard into a hallway, which, by the way, that's, uh, the, that's two different places. We shot the barbershop in a studio we, we, that was built by Bob Shaw. And then the camera goes into this hallway that's a location in an actual hotel in Manhattan. And then the camera goes around, uh, looks down some steps and follows these other guys who's coming. We go completely now the opposite direction and end up in these flowers as the shooting is happening. So why the flowers? Why the flowers? Well, because... Uh, I wanted to ask you that. Yeah. Not to interrupt, but... Well, I'm going to give you my theory because uh, Scorsese never actually said to me that there's a symbolism to the flowers. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, it's the way life is where something maybe really horrible is happening. And right around the corner, there's flowers. Or, you know, <laughs> that's the way life is, you know, yeah. and, and it's this com- combination. Sometimes something tragic is right next to something funny. The combination of this beauty with with the ugliness yeah. right and I, I think that's why we ended on the flowers while we hear this happening that's not frank sheeran doing that killing yeah so that's the camera's free to behave that way or in the, these swooping crane shots we we did a few in, in some of these uh court scenes also when for example um, uh joe gallo is in his deposition and the camera swoops down to mm-hmm. joe, joe gallo so this is where the energy of the camera picks up because it's it's Joe Gallo, who's this cocky, you know, guy and the way he walks into the place and the cameras. Uh, I think that was a Steadicam shot. We go through we go through these columns and there are flashes and there's flares on the lens. And, you know, so there's a whole different style mm-hmm. when we're following Joe Gallo uh, than when we're following, you know, Sheeran. So the also the scenes where Frank Sheeran is uh, throwing the guns away in the Skullkill River uh, and, uh, you know, the gun sinks to the ground mm-hmm. and. You know, um, and then we see all these other guns that are there. Is that an actual shot? No, that okay. that shot was yeah. was completely. We did it in a soundstage, dry, and I lit it with um, uh, these units that create sort of a watery lighting effect. Roscoe Delacru makes these machines, or they project these watery light. So I put these uh, units on the, you know, on the truss on the studio and lit 
a piece of a set that Bob Shaw built with trash and all these guns and, and the floor. And then we smoked the setup, and, and that's why the shafts of light, that's actually smoke, not water. And so the camera tilts down and finds all these guns. And the gun itself, that's CGI. That's okay. created by visual effects. It's a beautiful shot. It's a nice one, huh? But just going back to the, when he's throwing the guns, mm -hmm. if you remember the scene, the, the, the shots are repeated and with different cars and different guns. And it's part of that, what Scorsese was describing as that routine, that repetitive thing, that um, yeah. methodology that he's developed. Yeah. And by the way, was there anything uh, notably different about how the camera would behave when Hoffa was the subject of what we're saying? I mean, obviously, he's with Frank a lot, but, you know, maybe like in the court scenes, we obviously we've got a lot of movement. But I'm just curious if the, the language took on a different kind of tenor with Hoffa. I think that there is more energy simply because Hoffa is that way, you know, very energetic person. But in most of his scenes, he is with Frank Sheeran. And, mm -hmm. and it's, it's all about that relationship. So uh, I think in those moments when they're together, it's, it's Sheeran's perspective. So we're with, with that language. Yeah. I mean, even there's one shot, uh, which I, I was startled when Scorsese described what he wanted to do. Because it meant a big cheat in, in terms of how to photograph it. And it's uh, precisely when he kills Hoffa. We built that on a, on a studio, the interior. And uh, it's a very small, narrow area where the, the hallway, when they, where they walk in. And after he shoots them, then there's this wide shot, a proscenium shot, from where there would be a wall. It's kind of an impossible shot. It, you can only do it in a studio. It's very fake. <laughs> uh, and, and we had to extend the stairs, make them bigger because otherwise they'd finish and we had to take away a column. We had to do all sorts of things to make this shot possible. I was totally skeptical. I must say when, mm. as, as we talked about it and as we made it, I was, oh my God, this looks so weird. It looks fake. And yet it perfectly works. I think in the movie, that's one of the shots, by the way, that he said, was inspired in a movie and unfortunately I can't remember which one it is but this notion of going outside of it you know mm -hmm. but it also works with the language of where the camera is totally frontal to the action it's like almost theatrical mm -hmm. uh, but I think it works because we've established that style in the movie and also because it's such an emotional moment that you're not thinking oh wait there was a wall there you're just seeing what's happening I haven't right? even yeah, until you started describing that, I didn't even think that, yeah, yeah that's a It's an impossible shot. shot. Yeah. <laughs> it's totally impossible. <laughs> wow. Also, you know, there's a few notable instances of slow motion in yeah. the film. You know, assassinations, the wedding, uh, they kind of, they really play up the faces mm -hmm. in these big events that are happening. Uh, so just tell me about the thought behind when you would go to sl do slow motion. Like, there's a really extreme slow motion. Yes, it, it, it is extreme. Uh, we used the phantom camera, phantom flex. It was first based on photographs he'd been seeing on the research, especially of the Colombo killing. And he kept referring to the faces that you can see in those photographs and the expressions of the people, you know, in a moment of such high drama uh, in, in reality, you know, the, the reporters that were there. So that's why he wanted to slow it down to get that feeling of seeing these extreme expressions that he saw in the still photographs. It's interesting that he used it also for the wedding scene at, at, at the end because it's not a very active scene anyway. N not much is happening. So everything is already slow as it is. Uh, so enhancing the slowness of that, I think puts you more in 
Frank Sheeran's mind. He he's in an altered state. You know, he's pretending that everything's fine. That he just killed his mentor, his best friend, and uh, and he has to hide it. So just a, a way also of of seeing the detail of the expressions. You know, in, in a way can go deeper and, and, and ponder a little bit more about what people are feeling. Yeah, and Ray Romano gets a nice big moment there at the he beginning. Sure, of the- he <laughs> sure does. <laughs> Okay, so before we wind down, I wanted to talk separately just about the final third of the film and drill down there a little bit more. Uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit about the, the bleach bypass look and stuff like that, but just the visual language overall really starts to slow down here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the editing even. Uh, it, it's this sense of just the final threads unspooling, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, what was just beyond the look and the, and the, the, the way colors would look and, and the, just what was the kind of game plan for slowing things down with how you were going to sh- cover this portion of the film. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the change of rhythm is, is the way it's written, first of all, mm-hmm. and the way also De Niro played the character. It just changes. So uh, there wasn't that I'm aware of a conscious uh, change in, in, in the way we move the camera or any of that. It was still Frank Sheeran's world. We were still pretty simple in mm-hmm. the coverage. But Having said that, I think that a moment where we kind of go into that world is is when when he is looking at his car being washed. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that's one of my favorite moments in the movie. And the funny thing is that we, like every day, we were always moving uh, uh, from one location to another two or three times a day, mm-hmm. every day. So that was, in my memory, a day we were shooting in the car wash. And it seemed a pretty simple scene. We were doing some phantom shots, also slow motion. And the whole idea was to see Frank Sheeran in the little hallway through a window looking at his car being washed. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the main thrust of it. And that shot was kind of the essential one. So when we were there rushing to get it all done, uh, De Niro stood in the hallway, did the shot. And then he told Scorsese, he said, Marty, I kind of always imagined I'd be inside the car. And Marty, oh, you know, but we, you know, we designed it for you out there. And De Niro, yeah, but feels like I'd be inside of the car and Marty was, he's an actor's director. Whatever an actor feels that the actor needs, he'll, he'll go for it. And we then did that shot of De Niro. Okay, let's, okay. So let's, I had, I had some lights inside the car to be able to register his face because also it was slow motion. So you need more light. And then this is shot on film because this is, you know, not digital. So he gets into the car. I lay some track and we track the camera with him you know, just inside the car. And I think it's the most, one of the most beautiful moments in the movie, you know, the, yeah. the way the water behaves and the tendrils of the car wash, things that are washing the car, it's just beautiful. But also his motionless expression uh, is really beautiful. It really puts you in his state of mind. And Scorsese used both. He used him uh, on, in, the, in the hallway looking through the window and inside the car. So it's kind of surreal. Very, yeah. And that wasn't planned that way, but it, it, I think it works beautifully. And from there on, it's this new, more meditative style. And, uh, but it's because of the way De Niro is playing it. For instance, there's another shot later uh, when he's older where he's walking down a hallway in his home and he trips and falls. And I had some photographic reference. I don't remember the photographer that had a bathroom with, that was lit in this orange color by a, a heater. heater. Yeah. 
So I I showed that reference to Scorsese. He liked it. And that's the way I lit it, where it's kind of his silhouette against this, in my mind, kind of uh, a hellish thing. You know, it's kind of a this fiery inferno behind him in a way, you know, mm-hmm. and, and uh, but the way he walks down the hallway, you know, really struggling and then falls was so effective. But the funny thing is that every take, you'd be afraid that he might have hurt himself, you know, because he looked so frail. But then... He's kind of a good actor. He's a very good actor. So then when Scorsese called cut, he would just jump up as a joke. He'd jump up and, you know, be all strong and all that. He'd literally jump. But anyway, uh, this this change of rhythm is important. But also I did change the lighting in terms of... I thought that in, in, in his moments closer to his death, I wanted to have this bright sunlight on him. And so there, there's one moment where he's talking to a priest and it's actually in, in a church. And, and so I put this hot spot of sun on Sheeran. Uh, to me, it's like it's, it's coming. Death is coming. It's, mm-hmm. almost, it's almost here, right? And he knows this. So, so he's trying to reckon with that. And, and then again in the scene, which is another one of my favorite scenes with a nurse in, in the room where he's looking at the photos, I, I wanted to put him close to the window and put this hard... Uh, really bright sunlight on on him. So uh, that's not something that we see in previously in the movie. It's something that I added towards the end, and it was yeah. for me. It was kind of symbolic of what would it be heaven approaching or something? I don't know. Just yeah. this is this, this, uh, a proximity of of death. Yeah, and that heater shot I think is kind of beautiful, and it it, it gives me a, a different. Uh, it reminds me of something different, which is I kind of think of my grandparents' house. And there was a heater at the end of the hallway, uh, you know, growing up, going to that house. And so it just, that registers in my brain as like frailty, a grandpa, something about that. You know, it's just, it's really interesting image. Exactly right. Exactly. The the, the whole, you know, bone, cold bones, you know, if you're older, you need a heater, right? So, yeah. So yeah, it's also, it's it's a same, I totally agree with you. It's a memory I have also of my grandparents and heaters. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, you and I have talked a few times over the years with my, my old top 10 shots of the year column. You've been on there a couple of times for uh, <laughs> Mr. Scorsese's work. So I got to talk to you about the closing shot of this film, uh, which if I was still doing that column, I think uh, that that would be on there um, because there's just something beautiful about the framing, certainly. Uh, but, you know, Sheeran, he's alone in the room with nothing but his own reflections to keep him company. I mean, it's... Uh, it's staggering, really. It's a staggering way to close the movie, uh, subtly so. So just how early did you decide what that image was going to be? And then just tell me what comes to mind about it. The whole final section of the movie kept evolving as, as we were shooting, actually. The, there were scenes that were different. There were scenes that were added. Even his whole um, narration of the story, at one point it was going to be to someone else physically, maybe a priest. It wasn't clear. And then we got these pages, which he was just talking and it didn't make sense to me. So who is he talking to? What? We see him in this room. Nobody's there. Who does, you know, but, but of course it works beautifully. <laughs> that last scene, I don't remember at this point of the script, the first script I read mentioned the, the, the part of the door staying open. It might have or not, but I do know that when we scouted this place, Scorsese then, only then started talking about this transition he wanted to do of of the the day into night, which I think is a, a, a beautiful moment, you know, where we, we were with a nurse, the scene I described earlier, which I love. And then the camera goes, comes to the hallway with a nurse and pans around 
and now it's night and then it comes again into the room and it's nighttime and the priest is there and they have this conversation. That last shot through the doorway speaks to me volumes about uh, the vulnerability that Frank Sheeran has been hiding his whole life. He is uh, very stoic and you don't read a lot in his expression, but you do actually <laughs> see a lot in his eyes. And, uh, and that's, I think, very masterful of De Niro, the way he maintains this persona of, of uh, this macho guy who, you know, will do anything unfazed. But he, in the end, he's a, he's, he is vulnerable, like all of us. And I think that is what Scorsese is telling us with that shot. Mm-hmm. This man, everything he's done. And yet Scorsese allows us to follow this man for three and a half hours and we're riveted and we want to see more. We want to see what's mm-hmm. behind this man and what's in his soul. And this shot reveals a lot. This, this vulnerable old man who's almost like a child, fearful of what, what is it that he fears? Is it ghosts? Is it uh, his own death? What, what's he fearing that he needs a door to be open? Besides the, also the fact that we earlier saw Hoffa doing that. Yeah. They talk about that in the book where Hoffa didn't like to sleep with the door closed. Yeah. But I liked how they didn't like, you didn't hit that over the head. You just show him kind of leave the, leave the door open. And then later when Frank says leave the door open, hopefully there's like that the connection that he's kind of taken it from him. It, there's sense. that connection, but I, I see it in a, in a different way because it's with Hoffa, it's kind of a, 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 a realistic thing about it. You know, he, he is rightfully paranoid. Sure. There is yeah. reason to keep the door open. But for an old man in a nursing home, there really is no reason to keep the door open. It's, it's symbolic, I think, of his own fear of death yeah. and of this vulnerable person that he has now become. Yeah, absolutely. And that he's always been, but now he, he you know, we, we see it. And it's, there's so much sadness about just the overall moment. I mean, like, just knowing that you know, the, the nurse or whoever says that they're, they're leaving for the holiday and he's like, oh, is it Christmas? And yeah. so, you know, he's going to be there alone through the holidays. Yeah. And it's just, just sad, sad, sad <laughs> all yeah. the way through. There, there's, a, there's a melancholy uh, that, that, uh, that you feel at the end of the movie that I, I wasn't aware of when we were making it. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew that that moment was sad, but it's much more melancholic than I expected. And, and it's very profound and it, it's really touching. It, it moves me a lot. When I even saw the movie for the first time, the first cut, let's say, I mean, it was finished. The editing was finished, but without the visual effects or anything, it was, you know, the, the actors, I saw them as we shot them. And still the, the, the story worked and, and it moved me deeply, even seeing it like that. Yeah. And it still does. I mean, I, I shot it. I was there. I saw that <laughs> there's it's a set and I'm lighting it and, you know, and it's, or, or an exterior and the lights changing and I'm all stressed out and all that. And all the, that I forget when I see the movie. You know, it's, it's very powerful. That movie way. magic. Okay, at the end here, uh, just a couple of rapid fire questions to, uh, to wind things down. No pressure. Mm-hmm. Easy stuff. Like, what's your favorite cinematographer of all time? Of all time? Of all time. Ooh, that's a good question. Sven Nyqvist? That's a good one. Yeah. Can't argue with that one. Yeah. You got a favorite movie from Sven? I would say it's A Virgin Spring. Awesome. What's the greatest single shot of all time? I Am Cuba has a few of those. You know, certainly it's a spectacular shot. And then and, and just to think of how that was achieved in, in that time. Uh, when the camera goes down on, in, into a pool, out of the water, and then, you know, 
flies down to the street. Mm-hmm. Uh, that shot, I don't think will ever will ever be a shot you'd be like, ah, okay, that's yeah, whatever. No, it's still spectacular. I mean, even with all the technology we have now to move the camera, it's still amazing to me yeah. how they achieve that shot. It's pretty incredible. Is there a uh, a single image by chance or or a series of photography, whatever that that inspired you to become a cinematographer in your own right? Well, I think it was more just doing it that I fell in love with cinematography. Yeah. First, it was Super Eight. I did Super Eight movies and and uh, horror films, and and I, I think that started from Ray Harryhausen's films, uh, Jason and the Argonauts, uh, Clash of the Titans, mm-hmm. and the stop motion. Mm-hmm that he did was my first inspiration to do stop motion in Super 8. That, so that's what started my career in filmmaking. Cinematography, I think, was when I, uh, after working in a still photography studio and then going to film school, once I started lighting and doing the camera work and student films, I knew that that's where I felt really excited, comfortable, happy, busy, and yeah, that's where I discovered, okay, that's what I want to do. Yeah. And then last question here. Everyone gets this question at the end. Uh, you might have started to get into it here, but what's the movie that made you fall in love with movies? Yes, I would say Jason and the Argonauts. Yeah. Was the film that I thought was completely magical. And as a child, I could even understand somewhat how they did some things. And, and I found that the possibility of me actually being able to do something similar and 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 create uh with stop motion uh stories where the the you know my clay figures and my clay monsters could come to life and when i actually was able to do it when i was 10 years old that was so magical to me that uh, i i was hooked and it all started i would say with jason and the argonauts fantastic answer well, uh, that's going to do it for us, but thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, this was uh, outstanding work. Uh, if, after listening to this, if you can't believe it's outstanding work, you're crazy because they've created this entire system to do what they've done. So hats off to you, man. And uh, this collaboration that you've got going with Mr. Scorsese just keeps uh, proving dividends. So uh, great work. And by the way, a belated congrats on that silence nomination from a couple of years ago. We talked about silence at the top, so I just wanted to say that as well. Thank you again, man. I, I appreciate it, Chris. Thank you so much. We have a few episodes focused on the craft of the Irishman this year, and obviously with this film, but indeed with any Scorsese film, that craft is considerable. This was years in the making, and again, it's a brilliant sample from the autumn of a career like Scorsese's, But it's also fascinating that as old-fashioned as it might seem on its surface, he's still pushing the technological envelope with artists like Rodrigo Prieto, truly one of our great contemporary cinematographers. So don't hesitate. The Irishman is available to stream on Netflix right now. The Call Sheet is a Netflix podcast hosted by me, Chris Tapley. The show is produced by Noah Eberhardt and the team at Blue Duck Media. Stuart Park created all the original music in this episode. And a special thanks to the team at Netflix. 